Welcome to episode 192 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. Um, and we're joined today by two experts in the field. Michael Solmeyer is the director of the Belfer Center's Cybersecurity Project at the Harvard Kennedy School. Before Harvard, he was the director for plans and operations for cyber policy in the office of the Secretary of Defense. Uh, Michael, welcome. Thank you very much. I'm a long-time listener, but first-time caller, so thanks for having me on. <laughs> it's great to have you on. Uh, and we're also joined by Nick Weaver, uh, who's a senior researcher at the International Computer Science Institute in Berkeley and a lecturer in their computer science department. Uh, uh, Nick's been on uh, multiple times before, so Nick, welcome. Thank you very much. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and holding the record for returning to Stepto to practice law more times than any other lawyer. We ought to get started. Um, we woke up this morning, uh, uh, or if we were really on top of it, we read yesterday before we went to bed, uh, a New York Times article that I, I think kind of, I, I think they call it a thumbsucker in the trade because it's this long, uh, detailed article about how terrible things are at NSA because of all the leaks and the apparent penetration by uh, Russian uh, intelligence of their hacking operations. Uh, um, I didn't see a lot in the story that was all that new, uh, but the New York Times gets to do this. They get to sum everything up and tell us what to think for the next six months. Uh, uh, but Nick, did, did you see something new in that story? Uh, two things. One, the admission that it was more damaging than Snowden from the TAO side. I think the crypto side would disagree. They were the ones damaged by Snowden. But on the TAO side, Snowden didn't do much damage compared with this. I, I think but that's right. also what's also, what's interesting is the stuff that wasn't told, that there's actually a fair amount known about the documents themselves because they're public. Um, people like me, who blessedly lack security clearance, dug through them as soon as they were released. Two of the three op stations, that is, the collection of attack tools, were from ongoing operations. And the NSA knows whose ops stations those were because they just know internally who's doing the operation. They should know exactly when and from who those were taken. But of most concern is one of the things, the stuff about SWIFT, was taken from a NSA person's Windows workstation, his admittedly low-side Windows workstation, but a Windows workstation, and we know who it is based on file metadata, and just the, the press and everybody has been kind and not outed the guy. But So this means that somehow the Russians got the copy of a internal NSA Windows computer. How the hell did that happen? So they got inside uh, at least the low side, that is to say the unclassified uh, um, uh, Windows machine that he was using presumably for uh, uh, hacking operations. Yes, because it has a collection of Excel spreadsheet to keep track of the targets, a slide deck in progress of reporting out the status because – 
he wanted to create a couple of the images on the system low side where he had um, access to IP addresses and stuff like that, and then he obviously copied that over to the system high side, but that resulted in um, a slide template with uh, classified markings on it. So you wouldn't expect, I mean, I, I, the fact that they didn't get into the high side is not particularly comforting because if you're going to hack people, hacking them on the high side is, means you're only hacking yourself. Uh, so if you want to if you want to go out and hack, you have to be a, a machine on the Internet in some fashion. Yes, and if I'm targeting the NSA's hackers, I'm going to want to be on their low-side machines because those are the ones – connecting to the internet and actually performing the operations. If you're if you want third party collection and fourth party collection on the NSA, those low side systems are the ones you want to hack. So this suggests that they have that, that the NSA may well have been penetrated uh, uh, counterhacked if you will uh, to a, a very significant degree and they don't know how it happened. Yes, and also this is the kind of thing that Hal Martin would not have. So the Hal Martin stole the data and spilled it theory does not work for a lot of the shadow broker stuff because the op stations are customized. They're ongoing um, user-unique things. The Windows workstation is a user-unique thing. So the Hal Martin explanation is not an explanation. So that's probably why the mole hunt continues. Boy, but it does seem, as you say, it sounds like you could have probably found 15 people and said it's got to be one of these 15 people. But at the same time, are you really sure about that? What other systems have been penetrated? It's mm -hmm. a huge question because, let's face it, a Windows workstation, somebody who has physical access to it, a USB key and TS or, uh, TAO training, you give them two minutes and they will have it compromised. So anybody in the building who could have walked by that particular Windows workstation could potentially be an insider threat. All right. Well, so this is very discouraging. It's discouraging for the future because no one knows which tools might be compromised next. So investing in new tools and new operations could just be providing new tools uh, to the Russians and ultimately to organized crime. And at the same time, the CIA is no better. We still don't know how all that Vault 7 stuff walked out the door into WikiLeaks. So the Russians are really good at this, aren't they? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, that's that's a great uh, cheery way to start. Uh, um, the the other story that was uh, fairly hot this week was uh, fallout from the Texas church shooting, which uh, uh, in which the shooter's iPhone, it turns out, uh, is um, inaccessible to the FBI. The FBI is complaining, and uh, it's not just the FBI. The Justice Department has joined the um, the chorus full throatedly uh, uh, the deputy attorney general has uh, uh, given speeches on this that are pretty uncompromising uh, uh, and uh, uh, eager to uh, have the uh, debate about uh, uh, whether the uh, uh, whether Apple has an obligation to cooperate more fully um, I, I actually uh, I, I, I've followed what Apple has done here, and I, I think they are 
so eager to uh, score points off the FBI that they may be kind of confusing their message a little. Uh, I, I've actually tried to, to summarize the debate between the FBI and, and Apple's messaging in a series of uh, faux voicemails, uh, which uh, I will try playing for the audience. Okay, I've had it. Just stop calling. I don't want to hear how long we were together or how good it used to be between us. This whole relationship is one-sided. It's costing me money and time. I've had it. Just stay away. I'm changing the locks. That's the first. Here's the second. Oh, honey, I just heard about your troubles. It's such a shame. Really, if there's anything I can do to help, just let me know. Maybe we can get together soon. I miss you. And the third. What? I go out of my way to call, and it takes you two whole days just to get back to me? That is so typical. Well, forget it. Don't bother coming by. You're locked out again for good this time. And there it is. I, uh, uh, Apple is, is sort of the crazy uh, ex-girlfriend of uh, Silicon Valley. Uh, uh, first, they uh, they call up to say, "Oh yeah, things are terrible, and we 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 want to help." And then uh, two days later, they're scoring points and uh, gloating over the uh, failure of the FBI to do something simple like call for help for the people who blew them off last time. I uh, that's that's my take. Nick, you probably have a more forgiving view of uh, Apple's uh, uh, approach to this. Yes, indeed, I do. But first of all, this will not play out like San Bernardino because there's basically nothing Apple can do to unlock the phone. So in San Bernardino, the FBI had a great test case. They had a phone that was locked. Apple could be compelled to do something. And they knew there was no good evidence on the phone anyway. So, hey, um, perfect test case. This case, the FBI has a locked phone that they know has no good evidence on it. But it can't be a court test case because basically... Apple has made it so that in order to change the operating system to subvert security protections, you have to know the password in the first place. So it's basically Apple made it so in order to rekey the lock, you have to unlock the lock first, which is reasonable from a security standpoint. There is, however, going to be a very interesting case in the court of public opinion. So... We have Apple, who has to both play to their security strengths and the like, and you have the Department of Justice. And they're going to be going back and forth in the court of public opinion over this phone that everybody knows actually doesn't contain anything of note, because anything of note is the guy's messaging to people, which means you don't get it from his phone, you get it from his mother-in-law's. Mm-hmm. I, 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 and I guess his location would all all be recorded by the uh, uh, the carrier, right? Or at least at least by yep. cell tower. Uh, so you're not going to be able to track his movements more effectively. Well, maybe a little more effectively, but it, it's not uh, actually less effectively. Apple um, deliberately does not retain a lot of information on the phone for your location history. Okay. And so you said it, it's a reasonable decision to say we're not going to allow the operating system to be updated uh, without someone entering the password, uh, the, uh, the the PIN number or whatever. Um, do you think that's a 
an obvious and required step, or do you think that this is really part of the of Apple's decision to uh, essentially do their litigation strategy uh, through the engineering department? No, I think it is truly legitimate that, in general, changes to system state that are critical need to be authorized by an authorized user, and that that you could do an update that did not require putting in the passcode was a security vulnerability that they removed. And these days, I believe Windows and everybody else is doing the same thing as well. So if I were, if I were the Justice Department, I'd bring this case and then I'd do, do discovery for every email sent by every engineer at Apple about this change. And I am willing to bet that there are email exchanges in which they, they say, yeah, in your eye, Jim Comey. And probably true because from the point of view of an engineer, uh, the Justice Department and the Chinese are effectively the same. And you can't protect against one without protecting against the other. So I, I, but uh, I don't think that plays as well in the court of public opinion, which is why I would do the discovery. Except that you, the problem is, is you'll never get to the point of going into court because there isn't a remedy you can ask Apple for that would affect this phone. Um, not that remedy. That's true. Uh, but no, I'm, there's no remedy. Well, they can pay money. No, you can't. The <laughs> Apple designed the system no, but, to but, lock but, everybody out. Right, but if they had, if they had done it. So that um, a, a, an organized crime boss, and only an organized crime boss, could uh, invoke this feature, uh, and they knew it when they did it. Um, uh, you could say, yeah, well, you, we can't get in, but we can charge you a boatload of money for your deliberate uh, inter, uh, interference with the justice process. And we'll charge you a fine. Love... We'll, we'll assess a fine that is sufficient to deter you from doing this again. And if the Justice Department... Prize, Apple will move uh, corporate headquarters to the uh, Isle of Man and basically make their U.S. profits not taxed. So, well. you know, I, I hear this from, from people on your side of the debate all the time as though moving to the Isle of Man means they can't be sued here, they can't be held responsible for the uh, antisocial acts of their phones here. They can still, they'll, they'll, they'll pay just like Volkswagen pays when the, uh, they send software here in their cars that uh, defeats our uh, uh, monitoring process. They, it's not like they said, oh, I'm sorry, we're a German company. We, we never have to listen to the United States government. Uh, uh, they, can, they can sit on the Isle of Man, and unless they want to sell no phones in the United States, they're still subject to jurisdiction here. The problem is, is what they really care about is not the DOJ jurisdiction, but the NSA jurisdiction. That Apple wants to sell phones everywhere in the world, and weakening their systems for the benefit of the DOJ means weakening their systems for the benefit of the NSA. Yeah, which which uh, they only want to weaken their phones for the benefit of the People's Liberation Army and the Ministry of State they Security. They don't do that. You keep <laughs> you keep bringing that up, and it's not true. They've they, they, they've installed they've installed buggered crypto software and probably chips for uh, the uh, Chinese you, government. You uh, are referring to the stupid Chinese Wi-Fi encryption yes, protocol. Exactly. That is actually 
entirely about competitive behavior because the stuff in the U.S., the WPA password stuff, is also trivially breakable, and I assign breaking it to students for homework. Right, but the 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 the, the standard was a standard that everybody in the world had rejected because it was so obviously government uh, 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 weakened. Um, but no, Apple, it was not rejected because of government weakened. It was rejected because it didn't actually add anything over the other standards except for its anti-competitive nature of trying to favor Chinese vendors. So if if there's a weakness in the phone um, for everybody in China who has an iPhone, uh, uh, they should take comfort from the fact that it wasn't really done uh, to help the government get into the phone. It was done for competitive reasons, which, of course, no. are driven by the no. government's decision sure. not to allow you. <laughs> Stuart, you're assuming that WAPI is weaker than WEP, and it is not. WEP is so trivial to break in practice that the WEP standard, the one that we use in the U.S., is so horribly broken by design that you really are talking not apples and oranges, but moldy fruit versus moldy fruit. They're both horribly broken. They are both trivially easy to break. And, and the all right, I'll give you another Wappy example. Was rejected. I'll give you another example. When I uh, when they started selling, I think the Apple, uh, the the iPhone five, uh, or maybe it was the six. There was a massive attack in man in the middle attack on uh, uh, people who were using that, uh, driven almost certainly by the um, government of China to steal credentials. Uh, and unlike the brave um, uh, litigation strategy that Apple adopted uh, uh, when they uh, um, uh, fought with the FBI, they said nothing about the government. They just said, yeah, we're aware of this. Please be careful. Uh, and and uh, uh, did nothing to alert their customers to the uh, uh, to the attack or the the source of the attack. Um, can you do a citation for that? Please? I'll be glad to. Um, I'll, I'll put it in the show, uh, in the show notes. Uh, uh, but I, uh, I I remember it quite well. Uh, and you know they've moved their uh, uh, their. Their backup cloud data to uh, uh, to China, I'm sure, for the convenience. Yeah, just of Chinese. simply so that that is for the convenience of the Chinese government. Right. Just like uh, iCloud under 702 is for the convenience of the U.S. government. Uh, that's not a rec- not a requirement. I, uh, uh, they did it to curry favor with the Chinese government. I, I just there is no doubt that they value that market and are willing to sell out their customers. Uh, faster and more enthusiastically in China than they pretend to be in the United States. Than they are. Uh, their their stance in favor of security ends with the Pacific Ocean. And okay. Frankly, so what? Let's move on. <laughs> All right. ACDC. Uh, we'll move to something less controversial. Uh, uh, hacking back. <laughs> The uh, uh, the ACDC Act, which I interviewed Tom Graves about uh, a couple of uh, episodes back, has now picked up seven more co-sponsors, including Trey Gowdy, who's certainly a, a serious uh, uh, fellow. Um, a, and so uh, that act is getting harder, I think, 
for the Justice Department and uh, others to ignore. It's, it, it is achieving respectability, if not uh, the, uh, the critical mass needed to get passed. And USA Liberty can't, comes out of the House Judiciary. This is a very productive time for uh, for Congress, or at least there's a lot happening, probably because there's a pretty compressed schedule. Uh, so in addition to ACDC, the USA Liberty Act has come out of the House Judiciary Act, uh, Judiciary Committee with probably a three-to-one vote in favor. Uh, um, interestingly, it is uh, – pretty far on the libertarian spectrum uh, compared to any of the other bills. Uh, it does uh, end about collection. It just permanently, you know, because, you know, why why use something that has good intelligence? Uh, uh, and uh, it also uh, says that once you've collected data, um, a, under 702, the FBI cannot search it without probable cause, uh, unless for, uh, foreign intelligence purposes. That bill, although it is more extreme in its reforms than, uh, the Senate intelligence bill, is getting criticized as not going far enough by people who want to have a probable cause requirement basically for all searches for an American's uh, 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 data. Uh, and so the USA, I think, rights bill is floating out there as a possible amendment, floor amendment or something of the sort to uh, uh, USA Liberty. I, my sense is leadership's not interested in that happening, and so it probably won't. Um, but it looks as though the only... Uh, Changes to USA Liberty will come out of the House Intelligence Committee and then will go to conference with a Senate bill, which right now is uh, less libertarian than uh, the House bill. So it, it remains to be seen. Uh, my guess is about collection is – Genuinely on the bubble, uh, there's nobody who's dying to get rid of about uh, collection, and the Senate does not get rid of about. Well, it says you can bring it back if you can meet all of the legal requirements of the FISA court, and it goes through a, a review process here in Congress. So the big fight is likely to be over uh, the circumstances in which American selectors can be used to check the database uh, that uh, remains uh, after uh, a legitimate 702 collection. Well, um, I'll let others talk about some of the other aspects, but Abouts Collection's dying anyway. That Abouts Collection was effectively a bug that got turned into a feature, that stupid email scanners that were first deployed <laughs> would pick up um, keywords anywhere, not just in the headers. And so turn it into a feature, collect the data anyway. So, so the problem for, is, for, for, our, for our listeners, Abouts Collection, the, 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 what I always use is a, uh, an email address. So, uh, you know, um, uh, al-Qaeda terrorist at gmail.com um, is an email. It could be a, in the tool line. It could be in the from line. Or somebody could have said, by the way, what was the uh, uh, email address of that terrorist we were talking to yesterday so I can get in touch with them, and then it's just in the body of the message. But this will – right now – the system picks up all of those. Yep. 
And really, this was basically a limitation of early dumb systems that were installed a long time ago, and then it became a feature. But it's dying anyway, because most email on the server-to-server side, the stuff that was being picked up, is now all encrypted. Most things that are web forms are now all encrypted. And so about's collection really only mattered for the upstream monitoring. And upstream is dying anyway. So say you get rid of about's collection, it's a great bone to throw to people going, see, we're improving the process. That won't actually affect anything because that whole stream of data is drying up. And, and so what you're saying is that you don't do a bouts collection in uh, the downstream uh, 702 because you've got a target and you go to the uh, supplier of the process and say, here's my target. Yep. Well, I, I, I can't actually argue with that because, of course, you know, encryption is everywhere these days. Uh, and uh, uh, it was a productive um, set of material. Uh, it was productive from an intelligence point of view, um, but it may well be that NSA was really saying to itself, uh, I, I, we're not sure how much longer it's going to be productive. Yep. Okay. Uh, although it's hard to say that that's a reason to get rid of it, right? There's no, there's no principled basis, basis for saying, I don't want to have uh, a bouts collection done by the government uh, uh, because obviously uh, there could be real intelligence if somebody's handing on the email address of a terrorist. But at the same time, it's something that creeps people out. The The notion of a robot searching all your emails for bad keywords is something that just creeps people out and oh really it has it hasn't creeped them, has, it has not creeped them out enough to uh, uh, refuse to use gmail which has robots crawling through looking for keywords in your emails <laughs> yes but that wasn't uh, up on the headlines um, <laughs> i tend to be one of those who's very comfortable with robot searches but a lot of people aren't and so the principle of you're going to have to throw a few things under the bus so let's throw this thing that doesn't make a difference anymore under the bus. All right. I, I, I hear you on that, on that basis, though, the Senate bill, which says you can bring it back if you find a way to meet the requirements of the FISA court, is equally uh, a, uh, um, a, a provision that may never be actually tested and therefore about collection will continue to be off the table. Yep. Okay, um, so the NDAA passed and was signed. This is the National Defense Authorization Act. It almost always gets passed and signed, uh, and, and there's almost no other piece of legislation that comes along regularly that you can say that about, including the budget. Uh, um, and uh, Michael, uh, we're going to drag you into the into the conversation, even though this is a news item. I, I think you're the one most likely to understand, uh, well, to be an NDAA nerd. Uh, and so... Uh, there are two or three things in here. One of them I'm not sure you have much focused on. That's the MGT Act, uh, which was Will Hurd's idea for allowing CIOs to use their savings from uh, uh, changes in the IT architecture to improve or to, to buy better IT. Um, and a variety of other CIO empowering devices. That got 
tacked on to the NDAA uh, uh, and adopted. Uh, I've never, frankly, uh, been sure how I felt about it. Uh, it. It's the kind of thing where you say, yeah, that probably is a good idea. But, uh, I, it, it, Michael, do you have a strong view on MGT? Well, I appreciate, yeah, the chance to uh, jump in, and I'll stay out of the moldy fruit conversation. But I think on the, on modernizing government technology, this is one of these really short attempts at legislation that I think is very much worth trying. And it was stunning to me how in the last couple of years this bill has been introduced in a couple different formats and yet never got any traction but it was always much easier to lambast uh, the administration for not doing enough on cyber deterrence, you know, which I know we'll talk about a little later. The point is that we have to look at both the home game and the away game when you're trying to talk about protecting the country. And something as basic and I think as common sense as this modernizing government technology component now of the NDAA, it's definitely worth trying to help improve the home game. Uh, within the federal government. Yeah, so the NDAA also, I mean, that that was kind of tacked on and comes external to the Armed Services Committee. Uh, uh, the Armed Services Committee itself did a lot of cyber uh, tinkering in the NDAA. Uh, and uh, I wondered... You 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 had to worry about this in the policy office at uh, DOD. Uh, one of the things that the bill calls for is much more. Well, at least it it emphasizes the importance of oversight of cyber operations by the uh, uh, armed services committees. It sounds a lot like the oversight of intelligence operations that the intel committees exercise. Uh, is is this actually a change from uh, Armed Services Committee practice uh, uh, more uh, over the last few years? I think what you're seeing across the NDAA when it comes to these cyber operations type issues is a growing frustration with the executive branch. It started years ago, but uh, this NDAA in particular has so much language about reporting requirements, briefing requirements in, in some very, very detailed formats that uh, I do think this is actually a change. And I see a lot of John McCain and his staff behind what you were just talking about. I think there's very few in Congress who have been so focused on this issue than John McCain, especially on the Armed Services Committee. And even though those reporting requirements are admittedly a, a bit of a pain in the executive branch. You have to you have to really commend the fact that uh, even though he's not a digital native, he recognizes just how important it is to hold the executive branch accountable for coming up with a clear strategy and briefing ongoing operations like you just described. So, do you think that there the, the, there are notification requirements for cyber operations? Is this like the uh, um, uh, the covert ops review process that uh, the uh, uh, both the uh, Hill and the executive branch go through, or is it not as uh, sort of formalized as that? I, I think they're going to try to suss out how to conduct these briefings in a way that, that are sufficiently informative but 
but also not to the point of um, giving giving up the ghost, given that there's a common suspicion that the Hill tends to be a little leaky uh, when it comes to information. There's not a, a gang of eight type of, of setup here when it comes to this portion of the Authorization Act. Uh, for those uh, taking notes at home, I think this is Section 1631 uh, and, and some of the following sections that require this. But in general, I don't think that this is a bad idea. And I think it's important for the Defense Department to be able to explain to its overseers, even if it's in a smaller group, even if it's in a classified format, exactly what kind of operations uh, they've been conducting, especially offensive, but the bill language also has some activities including defense operations outside of the Department of Defense's own network. So um, the other big topic that gets picked up here in the NDA is uh, um, the um, uh, status of uh, Cyber Command. Um, and I know you spent a lot of time on this. Uh, uh, there have been a couple of different things that people have talked about with respect to Cyber Command. Uh, first, elevating it to full combatant command uh, uh, status. And second, uh, separating uh, uh, the Cyber Command from NSA. Uh, I called that the Playtex um, a solution that the, the uh, Congress was interested in lifting and separating the uh, uh, the commands, uh, um, a, and uh, uh, it looks as though the NDAA just lifts Cyber Command and doesn't yet separate um, NSA from uh, 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 Cyber Command. Is that is that basically where we are? Uh, Section 1648 has a reference to this question about separation basically asks the administration to do a check-in and say, how are you doing, Trump administration, on following last year's legislative requirements about separating the dual hat? So I agree with you in terms of forcefulness of language. The Congress is not compelling that separation, but they they did a little by at least requiring a, a midterm check-in in 1648. What do you think is the right answer there? Do you, do you, do you support the idea of separating uh, Cyber Command from NSA? You know, ultimately, the, the issue about the dual hat and the leadership is only one aspect of separating the two organizations culturally. And for a while, last couple of years, I've been concerned that Cyber Command wasn't actually ready to stand on its own. But more and more, I'm concerned that I think we have to separate the organizations sooner rather than later. Cyber Command now, I believe, has enough uh, maturity in terms of readiness that it's going to have to start alone at some point. And so I think that that time has come, and I hope the administration will act on it soon. So I, I, if I remember right, the, uh, one of the things that is, is holding it up and that uh, uh, the, uh, the NDA asked for is an assurance that Cyber Command can carry out cyber operations uh, on its own uh, effectively. Uh, um, I, my worry is actually the opposite of that. Um, and, uh, Michael, I'll, I'll invite your comments on this. It seems to me that... Uh, cyber command, cyber operations are inherently uh, about 
taking things down, breaking things, uh, uh, and the like, uh, as opposed to stealing secrets, uh, which is what NSA worries about. And uh, I'm not convinced that uh, if there is a fight between Cyber Command, which wants to break something, and NSA, which wants to exploit it, uh, that we're better off if you've got a three-star running NSA and a four-star running Cyber Command, because the the result of that conflict is predetermined, isn't it? Well, what I would like to see is at least a fair fight. I would like to see a fair adjudication of the question you just asked, and I'm I'm not sure that right now there's a fair fight. I understand in the scenario you just identified that between a four-star and a three-star, it's not necessarily a a fair fight either, but this is where I think the role of the DNI or uh, or ultimately even taking something to the NSC could be useful as a way to adjudicate between the two competing priorities. But but right now it's not a fair fight because it's dual hat, and that dual hat derives most of the power from the NSA side. So that's interesting. Uh, uh, but really, I, this could be as as simple as taking down some jihadi server. Uh, in, in the deserts of Syria, uh, and you're going to decide whether we, taking it down is better than uh, uh, exploiting it, and the National Security Council is going to have principals meetings, deputies meetings on, on this server and its fate? It should never have to come to that. But what I would like to see is to make sure that there is a process in place so that if there is a an actual competition of ideas and priorities between the collection community and the effects community, we need a neutral person to look and and basically decide, or a neutral body to decide what's more in the national interest. Yeah, I do have a I do have a bias here. I in, in my experience, uh, um, and this is probably partly the immaturity of the organization. Cyber Command took down stuff for sentimental reasons more than anything else. Uh, it's showing our guys getting killed uh, and gloating about it, and we can't have that. Um, and. Uh, uh, if you stack that up against the possibility of being able to exploit the, um, uh, the the server to find people who are killing our boys and kill them, uh, I'd take the second every time. Uh, but I don't think that's always a cyber command's uh, um, first instinct. Um, so I do tend to think that taking stuff down is less likely to be productive than exploiting it, but that's not always the case. Uh, but constructing something in which... Uh, a three-star has to say to a four-star, I'm taking you to the NSC. This just does not sound neutral to me. Uh, and if there's a subtle bias in favor of uh, NSA because uh, the head of Cyber Command is surrounded by NSAers, uh, um, you're trading a subtle bias for a, an astonishing and overt uh, bias uh, in which uh, the three-star has to imagine that uh, the four-star's evaluation of his performance is going to be deeply jaundiced if he doesn't agree with the four-star. Well, first, I, I would just say the, the NSC component is an extreme part of it, but you could very easily see the Secretary of Defense and the Director of National Intelligence making a decision before it ever has to go to the NSC. So there are ways to 
create a fair process, right, that doesn't involve taking it automatically to the White House. So the second part I would just note is I'm not sure, sir, it's a subtle bias. I mean, it's not just that the NSA director is surrounded by NSA people. It's that generally NSA directors come from decades of training and experience in a collection mindset. It's hard to blame them if their instinct is to prioritize that kind of activity. Yeah, that's fair. I, but that's because there wasn't a cyber command and there wasn't a uh, cyber ops uh, um, career track until the last five years. Uh, I, don't, right. I, I don't think that's... Uh, I don't think there's anything written that says that the uh, uh, head of NSA has to come out of the intelligence track if there's also a, a true cyber ops track. I agree. Yeah. Okay. Um, can yeah. I just add a couple of thoughts? Please. Um, one thing that I think is unfortunate about the split also, though, is that Really, if you look at the tools, except for the payload of what you do to a system, it's the same. And I worry that uh, splitting things apart is going to cause inefficiencies there. So they'll be using the and same tool over and over again, both of them using it at, at, at some risk to, to the tool. Um, yeah, uh, and they'll be reinventing stuff that they don't need to reinvent because the tool already exists in the other side. I, I have heard that, that uh, Cyber Command might have more m- money than technical expertise and that that has made them dependent on kind of uh, uh, getting their exploits more or less whole from uh, uh, the uh, contractors and not knowing, you know, uh, how to protect or what to do with them. And the other thing that worries me is this is not, I think, the split that matters, that um, – I agree with Stuart that I think there's uh, actually splitting things off is going to do too much emphasis on short-term flashy effect as opposed to long-term capabilities. But um, the other problem is, and the reason why there does need to be a breakup, is not the offensive espionage split, but the offensive slash espionage and defensive and that the NSA over the past few years has been in many ways going the other way in a way that hurts. Um, I know people who will not trust the CNSA suite because the NSA is behind it. Yeah, I've I've certainly heard that argument. uh, And in the end, I mean, there was a moment when it might have, that that split might have happened and it didn't. Uh, uh, But my guess is uh, anybody, if, if you were to, Pull that um, cybersecurity mission away from NSA. You'd obviously lose a lot because um, knowing what the attackers are trying is an important part of knowing how to defend against it. Uh, uh, and whoever you put in charge of it is going to be uh, so tightly tied to the attackers uh, for a variety of reasons uh, that I, I, I'm not convinced that you could persuade people, oh, now that we've put it in a separate office, uh, everybody should start trusting it. I, 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 I doubt that'll happen. All right. Probably true. I, I, I was going to uh, spend time on the president saying he uh, – or implying that he believed Vladimir Putin when 
Putin objected to that he had, had nothing to do with the uh, DNC hack. Uh, uh, but that seems to have been a 24-hour uh, uh, flap generated from things he said on the plane. Uh, and he's now said, oh, no, I'm with our, our agencies. I, you know, I think this is just. Don't worry, Trump he'll Trump. walk it back. Yeah, exactly. It's it, he's walked it back already, and uh, uh, it, so it's all just a muddle, and we don't need to talk about it. That's my 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 take. But if you if you have a different view, let me know. All right. Any Trump statements, face palm emoji. <laughs> Well, or at least, you know, the combination of uh, the president and the press, which is just determined to put the worst possible uh, spin on everything he says. You know, you really do have to say, OK, in three days, I'll figure out whether this matters or not. Uh, but I certainly can't rely on CNN having its hair on fire because their hair is perpetually on fire over something. Um, well, and they, they have the termity to report exactly what the idiot says. <laughs> you know, I don't know that they actually do. I think they almost always spin it in a way that uh, if you were more uh, favorably disposed to the president, you wouldn't necessarily read his remarks that way. Uh, if there's a bad interpretation to put on the president's remarks, they're going to put it on him. Uh, and, uh, and if there's a... Fact-checking problem. He's going to be called a liar. You know, it's a. It means you can't rely on either side of that debate until everything has settled out. That's my take. Um, but I recognize that uh, others have different views. Uh, I, I want to get to something that uh, I know Michael knows a lot about, and uh, I care about, and don't feel I know enough about, which is the idea of a strategy for deterring. Uh, cyber attacks. The NDAA talks about that. Uh, uh, they've assigned homework. Uh, the, um, the president's executive order said we have to have a strategy for deterrence. Uh, and yet I don't see anything. I, you know, my, my impression is that the, uh, um, the only people who've been deterred in this area are the president and DOD for fear that if they actually respond aggressively to acts of cyber espionage or cyber uh, 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 sabotage, that the incoming in response to that will be worse than anything we can do, uh, and therefore it's better not to uh, not to pull the trigger. Uh, so that's my my prejudice, Michael. Tell me I'm wrong, please. Well, I, I wish you could. I wish I could tell you you were very, very wrong. Um, I think largely you're you're right. Uh, I think that largely the analogy that gets thrown around started several years ago, which is you know when you're the one covered in gasoline, careful where you're throwing matches. I, I think, however, that that analogy reflected uh, not quite the most detailed or nuanced view of what kind of matches we have. Not all the matches we have are the same, and not all of them will lead to all-out escalation and a war fight. So I think there actually are a lot of people inside the Defense Department who would like to take a much more aggressive and offensive stance against the kinds of activities that we all know have been going on. Uh, ultimately, you know, to ask, does the Defense Department have a strategy for deterring? You know, I, I have to also ask, does the White House have the will to do it? And that's where I think this breaks down. That's not a partisan question. 
this has just been the case for a long time through both parties being in the White House. Ultimately, my view at least, that senior political leaders have almost never, with maybe one or two exceptions, almost never has cybersecurity come to the top table in terms of an issue on par with trade relationship or, or other important aspects of national security. That's their call. But that's why you see a perpetual frustration, I think, with deterrence is because we don't have that kind of consensus at the senior level that we actually need to deter the really horrible things that can happen. So I, and I, I agree with you that there's been flinching on a bipartisan basis, but most of the flinching did occur in the Obama administration because they had most of the attacks. Uh, and, and you lived through that, and I won't ask you to dish, but uh, um, in the end, some of the attacks were quite provocative, right? The, the Iranians, when we're negotiating with them or getting ready to negotiate with them over their uh, nuclear program, are DDoSing our banks on a kind of contemptuously uh, regular um, schedule. Uh, it, it was a, just a demonstration of capability um, a, a based on the assumption that we would not respond, and we didn't. Um, a, a, or the... Uh, North Koreans, uh, um, who have been stealing money and attacking our uh, companies uh, um, as though they didn't think they had a price to pay. And they mostly haven't. Uh, what what could we have done uh, if we were more serious about deterrence? Well, we, the Iran case is a good case to bring up, so I'm, I'm glad you did. You know, when it comes to negotiating to try to put a halt uh, even one that's imperfect on the country's nuclear aspirations. Do you want to trade that for some against some DDoS activity that I think arguably could have been mitigated by uh, the Akamai's and Cloudflares of the world? You know, that's a that's an adult level question, right? That you have to have that trade off. What what I expect of the Defense Department is to be able to provide options to senior leaders to say, if you want to choose to retaliate in a powerful way, here are some mechanisms to do so through cyberspace, and here are some mechanisms to do so outside of cyberspace with military assets and treasury. Do you have some involving follow the money? State, do you have some, right? I mean, this is where you need that those options for them to, to weigh. And what I think started to happen later in the Obama administration is they got more comfortable at least asking for the options, but it should never have taken that long. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I, obviously there were options that could have been taken that are not going to be, uh, that are classified and we aren't necessarily going to see all of that. Uh, but uh, I, one does not get the sense that the Iranians... Uh, stopped the attacks because they feared the consequences. So I think they that was their way of saying, you know, you have your options if the talks go bad and we have ours. Uh, and uh, they may have felt that those uh, uh, DDoS attacks served the purpose of demonstrating a, uh, a capability to cause harm to the U.S. that uh, had to be taken into account in the negotiations. I, I suppose that's a pretty generous reading, I guess, of what you know DDoS activity actually causes. I, mean, I think the banks have said that it, at worst it's a repu- that 
damage was a more of a reputational concern than anything else. But I think at the broader point, it's just really hard to deter when we won't even defend. Right. And this gets gets back to your your previous conversation you were having and the the sort of bar brawl uh, earlier on the <laughs> moldy fruit. Um, you know, when when we won't have a serious conversation about holding technology companies accountable for the products that they release, which is an anomaly in terms of our society, and that we hold auto manufacturers accountable, we had food producers accountable, people are accountable for putting products into the marketplace. And that actually doesn't kill off innovation. I, I know it's a popular line, but we innovate pretty well, actually. So uh, this is another breakdown of the t- deterrence area is that when we won't even go through those efforts at home to really think about systematic improvements on defense, it's hard to take the deterrent threat credibly. So I, 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 I see us actually continuing to double down on uh, uh, vulnerability. You know, the, uh, the Internet of Things is, um, is, a, is a pretty ugly place as far as cybersecurity goes, uh, and yet we're rolling forward, to, uh, uh, installing it left, right, and center, uh, um, and usually the cheapest Chinese-made uh, uh, versions. Um, uh, let me ask a provocative question. Um, if we knew that there was going to be a serious cyber attack on the United States sometime in the next 10 years, would we be better off if it happened this year rather than 10 years from now? And if so, maybe we shouldn't be quite as afraid of the consequences of taking tough deterrent action. Well, you're right. That is a provocative question. Um, in, in general, though, I, I think it is uh, the responsibility of our government to plan for just the scenario you described, right? That, that there will be a, a, a very serious cyber attack on the country and one that not just involves some serious inconvenience, but puts lives on the line. And while I never want to see that happen, I think we do have to plan for that happening sooner rather than later. It's not a good thing that it would happen at all, but it's incumbent upon all of us who have really worked through some smart legislative proposals ahead of such an incident so that when Congress does have that window where passing something, passing some sort of legislation is on the table, that needs to be smart, right? And we can't go through 15 rounds of arguing what an O-Day is and, and you know, reteaching and training everything. We, we've got to be able to have proposals in place. So my thinking is we've got had plenty of time to do that, uh, we need to be putting those options on the table. So is that the job of One the of, policy office in the uh, 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 office of the Secretary of Defense? Well, the job of the policy office in OSD is largely to conduct civilian oversight over cyber command right? and to be the Secretary of Defense's eyes and ears through all that that entails. Um, smart legislative proposals I think is an, an important responsibility and opportunity for academics and think tankers and, and others in the commentariat uh, to help to be able to propose as well. Nick, you wanted to get in? One problem just that always needs to be in the back of our mind, though, is that if I'm the hostile actor and want to do things that would cause boom, big, serious economic disruption, I'm targeting um, – 
civilian private sector infrastructure. And that makes the defense problem even harder because, uh, well, that's regulation, and regulation is bad. Well, regulation is bad until you... Uh, until you're unhappy with the consequences of no regulation, uh, and right now, yeah, if I regulation could... is bad, and <laughs> regulation is bad until the power grid crashes and the oil refineries explode. Yeah. So I, you notice, know, notice though, if, if I may, that I was using the word accountability in a in a way not saying regulation because regulation is one way to promote accountability. There's other ways. Right, and even the imposition of liability, without spelling out precisely how, right, is is another alternative. As are providing some positive incentives for companies trying to do the right things. So I think the objective is accountability. The methods, though, one of them is regulation, but there are other methods to put on the table too. I think we agree. All right. Okay, uh, uh, Michael, I uh, I know you've got some. Uh, uh, new reports coming up and other speeches. Is there anything you want to tell the audience about uh, uh, that they should be looking for coming from the Belfer Center? Well, I appreciate the opportunity to do a short plug uh, for uh, for the work that we're we're doing here. And I, I think what I'm what most excites me about what we have here is a great team of young doctoral students and folks just out of PhD programs, really trying to focus on the conflict part of the conversation like we've had today. There are a lot of other great institutions around that focus on surveillance and espionage and, and other types of work. We tend not to focus on that. We'll have a piece coming out soon about how the British have set up this new National Cyber uh, Security Center and some lessons that we might be able to learn from that here in the United States from for cyber defense. Looking forward to, to having that out soon. We'll also have a conference report out at some point soon on a workshop we hosted with uh, another country's representatives to talk about hacking back. So, Stuart, we'll definitely want to make sure we send you an advanced copy of of that and get your thoughts. So we'll have a lot coming out on the cybersecurity issues uh, from the Belfer Center in the next, uh, next few months. Excellent. Well, and I, if you're looking at the British system, uh, uh, my guess is Nick's going to be unhappy because, like all the other English-speaking countries, they've sort of doubled down on cybersecurity uh, through their uh, electronic espionage agencies rather than building a, a completely separate uh, institution. On the other hand, that doesn't necessarily upset me because, let's face it, Bulk Internet surveillance is network intrusion detection. If we're going to build global network intrusion detection systems, let's at least get some intrusion detection out of it. Thank you, Eugene Kaspersky. Uh, This program has been brought to you by Kaspersky Software and its uh, ability to do intrusion monitoring and any other kind of monitoring you apparently want. Uh, uh, Okay. Uh, Thanks to uh, to Nick Weaver and to Michael Solmeyer. This has been a terrific conversation. And this has been Episode 192 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Be sure to suggest other speakers. Uh, and we will send you a coveted Cyberlaw Podcast mug. Uh, uh, just send them to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, we're going to have David Ignatius uh, uh, on uh, uh, shortly uh, to talk about his new book about espionage and uh, technology. And uh, uh, also uh, author Rob Reed, too. Um, 
breaks from hardcore policy to talk fiction and what fiction is telling us about the future of technology. Uh, uh, so join us for those and other episodes as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.